Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we uncover history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 31. We're doing a really interesting case and set of trials today um, that I think is a really important case to cover, and one you actually might not have heard of before. Today's episode will all be about the Massey trials. The course of Hawaiian race relations and politics was permanently altered by two highly public criminal cases, one for rape and the other for murder, both involving several defendants. The trials have all the makings of a good mystery. Twists and turns, unsolved questions, they're just full of them. Clarence Darrow, America's best defense lawyer, will end his judicial career during the second part of this infamous Massey Affairs. No trials in history have had more of an impact on Hawaii than these ones that startled and shook the nation in 1931 and 1932. The United States was in the middle of the Great Depression by 1931. Many white Americans departed the mainland in search of an island paradise. Some were drawn by the exoticism of the new island life, while others were looking for fresh fortunes after losing their previous ones. Talia Fortescue Massey, a Navy wife, informed the Honolulu police that she had been raped by four or five men early on September 13, 1931, after being forced into a car and driven down Ala Moana Boulevard. Within a day, police had apprehended five individuals, all of whom were from a certain working-class area. The young men included one Chinese-Hawaiian, two Native Hawaiians, two Japanese, and two Japanese-Hawaiians, who had all become known as the Ala Moana Boys. According to Encyclopedia.com, On September 12, 1931, Navy Lieutenant Thomas Massey, age 31, and his wife, Talia, age 21, went to a celebration in Honolulu, Hawaii. Talia went for a walk outside after becoming bored with the evening's festivities. Her husband, Tom, called home at midnight because Talia had gone missing and had simply not returned. Talia answers the phone and says, quote, come home at once. Something terrible has happened. She then states that she had been abducted and raped by five Hawaiians. Tom Massey returns home and discovers his wife distraught, with bloody and bruised skin on her face. She said that five men of mixed race had sexually assaulted her after being kidnapped. 
on the side of the road and transported to an abandoned animal quarantine station where she was hit in the jaw when she protested and then abandoned. She managed to signal a passing vehicle and its driver had taken her home. Tom reported his wife's attack to the police just before two in the morning and policemen were at her home in less than 30 minutes. Talia reported to the police that she had been abducted while out for a walk on John Eater Road, and that she had also been gang raped after being beaten in the car. She claimed she was unable to identify the car's number plate and the attacker's faces because it was simply too dark, but that she could identify their voices. That same evening, there's another incident. According to Honolulu Civil Beat, a group of young men are out driving, when a white man driving a car by the name of Horace Peoples almost hits them. When one of the young men, Kahawahi, muttered something about a, quote, goddamn a-hole, Agnes Peoples, a sizable Hawaiian woman, rushes out of the car and shoves Kahawahi. The two get into a physical altercation. Agnes is struck in the ear by Kahawahi. But before the young men leave in their car, she grabs him by the throat and strikes him in the face. Agnes notes the young men's plate number on their car and gives it to police, who then announce it over police radios across Honolulu. It's actually thought that Talia hears this license plate number while being driven to the hospital by two police officers in a police vehicle, because when questioned afterwards, she gives police almost exactly the same plate number as those on the young men's car, claiming that they belong to her attacker's vehicle. But this is a number she had previously stated many times she was unable to see because it was so dark. This is Talia's first major inconsistency. Talia arrives at the hospital and is checked by a Dr. David Liu on September 13th around 2.35 a.m. Despite being unable to confirm or deny that a rape had taken place, the medical examination revealed that Talia had a broken jaw, which would require surgery a few days later. In the meantime, Talia repeats her claim to the doctors and the nurses that she's unable to identify her assailants. Now, the police quickly apprehend Horace Ida, who admitted that he and four of his buddies had had a fight that night with a different woman, but denied ever hitting Talia Massey. But it's after these men are apprehended that Talia does identify her attacker who fractured her jaw. And he's the well-known prize fighter, Kahawahi, who also happened to already have a criminal history. This again is another change to Talia's story, who originally claimed not to have been able to see the faces of the men who raped her. Because it's after the police rounded up these five men that she's suddenly able to identify them as her attackers and specifically identify Kaawahi as the one who punched her. The young males are swiftly referred to as fiends, thugs, and gangsters by Hawaii's two biggest newspapers. Even though Talia called her accusers Hawaiian, the men are of different racial and ethnic origins. One is Chinese-Hawaiian, Two are Japanese and two are native Hawaiians. The commandant of the Hawaii-based naval district, Admiral Sterling, voiced his wish that these brutes would be strung up on trees. And a group of white businessmen offer a $5,000 reward for information leading to their convictions. This case reinforced racial prejudices that white women are innocent victims of the violent lust of men of color. 
and demonstrated the necessity for greater regulation and supervision of the ethnic community. The case received a lot of attention and infamy on the mainland. According to FamousTrials.com, one major weakness in the prosecution's case emerged as the investigation progressed. It was difficult to understand how the suspects simply had time to carry out the alleged rapes. The males were spotted by witnesses around Waikiki till 12.05 or 12.10. By 12.30, they had returned to the private residence of a city supervisor, where a party had been going on earlier. Six miles from the alleged rape scene, at 12.40, a close call with Agnes Peoples took place. Between 12.50 and 1, Talia Massey was picked up by the clerks who took her home. So how did these five young men manage to drive across town, get Talia into their car after 1240, drag her outside, rape her six or seven times, giving her enough time to stand up and flag the car down all by 1 a.m.? The timeline was simply illogical. Despite this, on November 16, 1931, the trial in what was referred to as the Alamoana rape case began before Judge Alva Stedman in the Honolulu courthouse. And the trial would go on until December 1st, 1931, when closing arguments began. The defense claimed that the prosecution's police witnesses had been caught red-handed in framing tire evidence to send innocent men to jail. They also asserted that evidence showed the defendants were not in the area where the rape took place, if it even took place at all. The prosecution urged the jury to protect its women and vindicate Hawaii. The convictions that the majority of white Hawaiians and those who have read newspaper stories of the trial anticipated would occur never did. The jury discussed and deliberated for 97 hours before giving up, unable to reach a decision. The jury was deadlocked at 6 to 6. After the ruling, headlines read, The Shame of Honolulu. Despite the absence of any proof linking any of the five accused males to any crime involving Talia Massey, whites on the island and on the mainland were furious and demanded martial law, claiming that the local legal system had failed to defend white women from native men. Grace, Talia's mother, arrived from the mainland following her daughter's alleged assault. When rumors surfaced that Talia might have been beaten up by her own husband, or someone she was having an affair with, and that she had lied about the rape in order to get sympathy for herself. Grace and Talia's husband were worried that Talia's reputation was in ruins following the mistrial. They were concerned that the results of the second trial might be identical to those of the first. No new evidence of guilt had been found by the police, and there didn't seem to be a clear way to exclude non-whites from a second jury, and they suspected that it was the non-whites on the jury who voted for acquittal in the previous trial. They came to the conclusion that a guilty verdict could only be assured by a confession. Horace Ida, the driver of the car allegedly used to rape Talia Massey, is abducted and given a severe beating. His attackers threaten to throw him over a cliff, but miraculously, after being left for dead, he's found and brought to the police station, where he reports his kidnapping and assault. According to FamousTrials.com, Kahawahi was obliged by a court order to meet with his probation officer every morning at 8 a.m. at the Justice Building in downtown Honolulu. 
Thomas Massey arrived at the courthouse on Thursday morning, January 7, 1932, wearing a gray chauffeur's costume and goggles. A soldier who had been enlisted for the scheme, Deacon Jones, was traveling with Massey, and Grace and another sailor, Edward Lord, behind them. Now Jones marched over to Kahawahi, grabbed him by the arm, and brandished what looked like a military summons in his face. They ordered him into a car at gunpoint and took him to Grace's home. Now after attempting to get him to confess, they shoot Kahawahi in the chest and then wait up to 20 minutes, the amount of time it would have taken, according to a later assessment by a doctor, for him to die from internal bleeding. Grace, Massey, Jones, and Lord are detained as they attempted to dispose of the body. When police find the trio with Kahawahi's body, they were already on the lookout for a strange vehicle because a friend of Kahawahi had seen the kidnapping and reported it. But the Navy successfully argues that the murder suspects should be held on a ship, the USS Alton, rather than in prison as they await their trial, after they were detained and charged. They're celebrated as heroes by numerous friends rather than treated like criminals. Fresh flowers, bouquets, and cards with well wishes and offers of assistance blanketed the deck of the Alton. Clarence Darrow, the most well-known defense lawyer in America, was 75 years old by this point and had been retired for around seven years when the grand jury hands down its indictments. Darrow had defended Leopold and Loeb, two well-off Chicago students who abducted and killed a 14-year-old in 1924. He also famously argued against William Jennings Bryan in Tennessee during the Scopes trial for the right to instruct students in the principles of natural selection and evolution. However, the assets that Darrow and his wife Ruby thought would ensure them their golden years of European travel and opulent lifestyle had been negatively impacted by the Depression. Darrow appeared an improbable choice to represent four whites accused of killing a Japanese-American, given his track record of standing up for society's outcasts and his extremely progressive view on racial matters. The great man was enticed back into the legal arena by money and the prospect of a dramatic trial in a tropical location. Again, according to FamousTrials.com, in his autobiography, Darrow explained why he chose to accept the case for the then pricely sum of $30,000 plus expenses. He needed the money. He wanted to visit Hawaii, and he was interested in cases that addressed important psychological questions. On April 4th, 1932, the trial begins. Prosecutor John Kelly described the circumstances surrounding Kaawahi's death for around a week. But because all four of the defendants were deemed equally responsible for the prizefighter's death by Hawaiian law, he made no attempt to identify who fired the fatal shot. Throughout the trial, Darrow describes the murder as an honor killing and had psychiatric experts testify that Tim was temporarily insane at the time of the shooting. The jury would deliberate for almost 50 hours before finding all four defendants guilty of manslaughter. Each was given a 10-year hard labor sentence. But soon after the verdict, Hawaii's then-governor Lawrence McCulley Judd reduces their sentence to just an hour of detention under the high sheriff's supervision. They remained at the governor's office for the duration of this brief sentence. After being freed, the Navy hurried them onto a ship 
and they departed the islands, never to return. They effectively got away with murder. A 273-page Pinkerton report, which was commissioned by the governor after the FBI declined to look into the matter, is delivered on October 3, 1932. The Pinkerton report concludes that the Alamoana defendants' alibis are consistent with witness testimony and that there was no proof linking them to the rape of Talia Massey. The report also did have quite an antiquated view of rape, and it suggested that Massey hadn't been raped, uh, raising the question why she didn't simply resist and that there should have been more indication of a struggle if she had. Later, John Kelly declared that the rape allegations against the Alamoana defendants had all been dropped. A little late for Kahuahi, who at that point had already been murdered. In his book, Honor Killing, How the Infamous Massey Affair Transformed Hawaii, David Standard makes the point that the case affected Hawaiian society just as much as it affected the lives of the individuals involved. The trials gave prominent members of Honolulu's white society the confidence to speak out against the strong commercial aristocracy that had controlled the island's social structure for so long. The case also persuaded Chinese, Japanese, and Hawaiian community leaders that their shared interests were more significant than what had previously kept them apart. Various ethnic groups started to identify less with their specific nations of origin and started to conceive of themselves as Pacific Islanders, Asians, or Natives. Hawaii's politics changed when non-white voters turned out in record numbers. Previously a Republican territory, it switched to Democratic control. Hawaii has gradually lost some of its distinctive political characteristics, but it has a long history of progressive changes. At this point, you might be wondering, whatever happened to the murderers? Well, the trial ended Massey's career in the Navy. Ten years after he and Talia divorce, he passes away in 1944 at the age of 44. And after years of depression and multiple suicide attempts, Talia Massey dies in 1963. Years previously, her mother had already passed away. Their lawyer, Clarence Darrow, dies in 1938. The Massey trial was his last. But this case continues to live on in popular culture. Blood and Orchids, a four-hour miniseries created by Lorimar Productions and shown on CBS TV in February 1986, was written for television by Norman Katkov, who based his teleplay on his own book of the same name. Now, in comparison to Katkov's novella, Max Allen Collins' 1996 novel, Damned in Paradise, more closely follows the case's facts. A Crime to Remember, on Investigation Discovery, gave the case another look in 2016. Also in 2016, the Honolulu Civil Beat and PRX podcast Offshore included a segment on the Massey case. The incident was the basis for the short film Ala Moana Boys, which had its premiere at the Hawaii International Film Festival in 2021. It was then screened as a part of the PBS Short Film Festival in 2022. Now, on August 3rd, 2006, Lieutenant Governor Duke Aona presided over a mock trial at the American Bar Association Convention held at the Hawaii Convention Center in Honolulu. 
He conducted a second investigation into the rape case using modern forensic methods and a copy of the Pinkerton National Detective Agency report that was created by the then territorial government. The jury at the convention consisted of lawyers in attendance, and these lawyers unanimously voted not guilty for each defendant. In an ironic historical turn, the Alawai Inn, where the case originally began, is now the site of the Hawaii Convention Center. And that brings us to the end of this episode, the Massey Trials, and the historical case that changed the landscape of Hawaii forever. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion, you can reach us on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod or by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.